I'm glad to be back. The next couple of weeks, this week, uh, myself and the next week, Justin, we're really going to kind of just kind of share some things that God has put on our heart for you guys um, before we dive in here in a few weeks to um, our fall sermon series uh, once we get kind of everybody back for school and ready to go. So um, if you weren't here last Sunday, man, you missed an amazing time. Uh, we got an opportunity to kind of celebrate um, and recognize our summer interns that were here. Um, we had uh, 19, I believe, different interns, uh, first year and second year that came through, and they just got to see the impact that that program had on um, those young leaders' lives. And specifically, we got to hear from Ronnie um, and Sam just kind of sharing about the transformation that took place in their own lives, and, and that was just super encouraging. So I'm um, really grateful for Justin, Sam, Zach, the folks that poured into those uh, young people this summer. Um, but from our very inception, so going all the way back to when we first started having meetings about this church that would become Wellspring, um, our desire from the very beginning was that this would be a place of influence for the cause of Christ in our city and beyond. Because each week about 250 to 300 adults come and we gather to worship, but our real desire was, was the ripple effect that would happen outside of these walls Monday through Saturday as you guys cross paths with people um, in need in our community. And, you know, we have so many educators and coaches and young life leaders, um, students, business owners, um, just all kinds of influential people, health professionals um, in our pews every week. And when you start thinking about the combined influence of all of you when you head out of here and you go to your jobs or to your schools or to your, your places of, of influence that God has given you, literally, when you guys, when you think about it, thousands of people, thousands in our city are being impacted by this group of people every single week. And I would say we've kind of got a, a disproportionate number of influencers here at Wellspring. So that's super encouraging um, but it's also a little bit staggering to think about. And so today, I want to take some time in the Word um, just to consider how are we doing at stewarding the influence, the trust that God has given us? How are we doing with that? What are the habits that we're employing in our personal lives to maximize the impact in those spaces and places? especially as we head into this new school year. So I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It's page 1081 in a pew Bible if you're using that. If you're on your phone, it's the NIV version is what we're going through. So Paul is writing this letter to a church in modern-day Greece in Thessalonica. And um, we're going to start looking at uh, verse 4. Uh, let's see, 13? No, 14. So chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, starting in verse 14, he says this, And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. And man, I love that. I love how Paul kind of speaks to this young congregation, and he's talking about the communal responsibility that they have to be kind of in this for one another. 
And not just for the people kind of inside the church walls, but also for everybody else in that city. And he calls them, and really it's it's our calling too. It's this invitation that we have to warn people, to kind of to lovingly confront people when we need to, to, to help people, to encourage people, to be patient with people, to protect against acts of retaliation, and to strive to do what is good for each other. That sounds like a great job description for a teacher, doesn't it? And that list is kind of the what we're supposed to do. But today, what I really want to focus on is the how. How do we go about living that life and doing those things that he, he just mentioned right there? So, because here's the deal. When you look at that list, it's, some of those are kind of no-brainers, right? Of course, as followers of Christ, we should be encouraging and helpful and patient. And like all of us would say, yeah, I want to do those things. And we might even set out to do those things in the places of influence that, that God has given us. But inevitably, things start to break down at some point, don't they? Right? They bring in these speakers, you know, you teachers out there at the beginning of the year, you know, to get you all fired up and woohoo, we're going to, you know... I'm not going to be the teacher I was last year. You know, I'm going to be way more patient and loving and kind and blah, blah, blah. Uh, or a young life leader, whatever your context might be. But then things start to happen, right? And when things tend to happen in our world, because for one, we live in a broken world filled with broken people, of which we are all a part of that. So we contribute to the brokenness. When you put that much brokenness together, some stuff's going to go wrong. And usually what happens is, is, is trouble and strife and suffering kind of enters into the mix. And so as much as I might have wanted to go into that situation of, of influence and be patient, all of a sudden, you know, it might be a few days, a few weeks, maybe you can make it a month or two, I start to become really annoyed by people. And, and, I, and, then, and the, the neediness and the demands of people start to kind of feel pretty burdensome to me. And with my personality as, as not a people pleaser, what that makes me want to do in those situations that makes me want to withdraw and shut down and really kind of just begin thinking about myself and my own self-interest. I'm just kind of done with people at some point when my perspective gets lost. Others of you that, are, that kind of like to play in people-pleasing land, when things start to fall apart, you kind of start trying to ratchet up control. Surely I can do something to turn this story around and make everybody happy. And so you dive in and you're trying to do all this stuff and you just end up exhausting yourself. It's equally destructive and you end up in the same place, right? So let's see what Paul has to say about the how. How are we supposed to carry out these roles as influencers for the kingdom of God. So we're going to look at verses 16 through 18. This is what he says. He says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Well, that was quick, right? It's three easy steps. Hey, folks, just, just rejoice always and pray continually and give thanks in all circumstances and everything will be just fine, all right? So I'm going to wrap us up in prayer, and uh, we're going to go ahead and head on out of here, right? Surely we can pull that off. But now, for those of you that have been following Christ for a while, you're very familiar with those three things. And those three things are, are commands, correct? These aren't suggestions. 
He's commanding that this is what we need to do if we're going to live that kind of life. And those are incredibly hard things to live out. In fact, I would say that they are intentionally impossible. Intentionally impossible commands to perfectly obey. Because it doesn't say rejoice a lot. It says rejoice always. It doesn't say pray often. It says pray continually. It doesn't say try to be thankful. It says be thankful in all circumstances. Nobody can claim that they can do those things perfectly. So I'm asking you, why does God give us this list of impossible commands? Why? What do you think? Yeah, Eric. To what? Okay, yeah. What else? Yeah. So we have to rely on God more, okay? Perfect. Anybody else have any insights? It's a pretty good answer, Brooke. <laughs> okay? So to, to have to rely on him, okay? Making our frailties very obvious to us. You, you look at that list and you know, yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> and so then it becomes, where does that lead you? Once you're aware of the fact that you can't do that. And hopefully it, it makes us understand that we have to have this posture of dependence on him. Our need for him becomes blatantly apparent to us, okay? And those three things, those three commands are kind of the secret formula, really, of living this Christ-centered life. And if we do those things in increasing measure in our life, we will find that we will have tremendous impact on those around us. So let's take a deeper dive into each command. So first, rejoice always. What does that mean? Does that mean that we're supposed to just always be happy? Or at least strive to kind of fake it if we don't feel it? Of course not. Because that would be super disingenuine if we did that, right? And, and disingenuine, I don't think it's a word, but it's the word I'm using this week. Because I typed it in and I'm like, I know I've said it and I think I've heard it, but my computer didn't think it was a word. Anyways, you know what I mean, all right? And sadly, there are a lot of Christians that kind of fall into this category of just kind of having this kind of fake, cheerful persona all the time. And you ask them how they're doing, and, and everything's always great, and the Lord is always good, and just blessing us, and just moving from one blessing to the next, and you're just like, oh, it's, uh, geez, you're killing me here. Because it's just not true. It's not honest. I met a guy in college, um, and he was kind of a strange dude anyways, but, so the story didn't surprise me, but he tells me this story about um, where he got saved, and it was, uh, he was, had grown up in Denver, and he went to a church, I swear this was the name of the church, the Happy Church, the Happy Church. Now, can you imagine walking into the Happy Church on Sunday morning and have somebody ask you, hey, how are you doing today? And you answer, oh, man, I'm really kind of feeling depressed. Be like, not here you're not, right? Just take that outside, right? We don't need any of that here. This, we're the happy church. So everybody's happy. I don't even know if that was allowed to have any of their emotion at the happy church. But 
That's, that's kind of what I'm talking about is that kind of just fake atmosphere. And I'm, I'm fairly certain Paul doesn't want us to fake it. I'm pretty sure that he believed in, in this deep joy that superseded his earthly circumstances. Because when you read the letters that Paul wrote, guys, we know that his circumstances were usually not great. <laughs> they were usually pretty rough most of the time. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul gives us this long list of hardships of like all the things he's been through in doing ministry and in, in, in doing the right things. And in the middle of that, in verse 10, he adds this. He says, sorrowful. He's talking about his own emotion, okay? He's acknowledging the truth that, man, <laughs> there's times when I'm really sorrowful. But then he follows it up with this, yet always rejoicing. To Paul, rejoicing wasn't a matter of feelings. Rejoicing was this matter of obedience. A choice to focus on and to live from a deep joy in something permanent. He goes on in other books in Philippians 4.4, Paul states it again as a command. You're probably familiar with this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. To rejoice always it's a choice, it's a decision that we make that's not based on earthly circumstances. The, the prophet Habakkuk described it like this, and I actually want you to turn to Habakkuk because it might be the only time in your life you turn to Habakkuk. So this is Habakkuk 3, okay? I'll just wait for you to find it. No, I'm just kidding. It's page 854 in your pew Bibles. Habakkuk chapter 3. I dare somebody to name their kid Habakkuk soon. Who's going to take one for the team? Right there. There you go. I like it. Okay. So Habakkuk 3, starting in verse 17, <clears throat> he writes this. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls. So in other words, even when everything is going absolutely as poorly as it can go. Verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. And I hope you picked up on a couple of secrets in those passages. These writers, they're saying rejoice in what? Rejoice when everything is going well in our life. I mean, any sinner can do that, right? Rejoice when all the people around me, my spouse, my kids, my students, my athletes, my coworkers, my boss, are doing things exactly the way I would like them to do it to make me happy. No. Paul says rejoice in the who. Rejoice in the Lord. Habakkuk said, I will be joyful in who? God, my Savior. Rejoice in something that is eternal. No matter what your circumstances are here, are here on earth, you have a heavenly Father who created you and loves you. You have a Savior who died for you. You have a spirit who embodies you and empowers you and is constantly interceding for you. All three parts of the Trinity 
advocating for you. Rejoice in that reality, that truth. I want you to flip over to Acts chapter 16. And we're going to see how Paul kind of tried to, to live this command out. So Paul and Silas, they come across this, this female slave who's, who's got this demon in her that, that, that she's a fortune teller. And she's making a lot of money for these people that own her. And so Paul casts this demon out of her and everybody gets all up in a roar about it. And the owners obviously are losing money. So let's look at, at verse 22 of chapter 16 of Acts. It says, The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. So that's a pretty rough story, isn't it? I mean, you're, you're stripped, so you're vulnerable, you're exposed, humiliated, and then you're beaten with rods, which I would imagine would have kind of cut you open, bruised you, possibly broken some things in your face, head, ribs, wherever they were hitting you. And then while they've got you down, they're, they're flogging you. It says severely flogging you. And flogging is what they did to Jesus before they put him on the cross. It's with this cat of nine tails. It grabs the flesh off your back and just rips it to shreds. So that's kind of the first half. And then they throw you in jail, in prison, Roman prison, probably not real comfortable. And they bind your feet in stocks. So you're kind of constricted and, and sore from not being able to move around very well. And if anyone had the right to complain about their circumstances in that moment, it was Paul and Silas, right? I mean, this is rough. Yet what does it say that they're doing in the middle of the night? They're praying and singing hymns to God. And what were the other prisoners doing while they were doing that? Does it say that they were shouting out to them, hey, shut up, we're trying to go to sleep around here? Or, or taking food or gruel or whatever it is they served in prison and throwing it at them and, you know, just trying to get them to keep it down? What does it say? The prisoners were doing what? Listening to them. The fellow prisoners were listening to them. You see, when we rejoice in times when complaining is really the logical and rational thing that someone should be doing under those circumstances, it gets people's attention. They're intrigued by that. They want to know, why are you rejoicing like this? Where is this joy coming from in you? We'll talk more about that in a minute. Secondly, he says, pray continually. What does that mean? It's not very practical for us. I mean, I'm a journaler. I write my prayers. You know, I can't just go around in life, you know, all the time. Hey, just, just give me one minute, okay? I need, to, 
I need to really write in my journal right now, just something that's on my heart. I mean, we can't stop, you know, things and do that very often. We can't always, you know, close our eyes, you know, driving down the road. I just need to pray right now, you know, Jesus, take the wheel for a minute while I'm praying. All right, we can't just out loud verbally pray in certain settings that we're in. So, so what does it mean to engage with God continually and, and in the midst of kind of our busy lives? And I think the best way that I came about uh, to describe the posture that Paul is encouraging is just that we would all be mindful of God all the time, that we would be mindful of him. And sometimes we only have a moment to throw up a word or a plea. It only takes a second for us to say, Lord, help me, right? I love this little story that, that really speaks to this point from the book of Nehemiah, okay? I know I'm getting all Old Testament on you today. So the people of Israel have been conquered by the Persians, and, and they've been carried off into exile. And so Nehemiah is in exile uh, under the authority of King Artaxerxes, and um, he hears about Jerusalem, okay, the holy city, and, and it's been destroyed, and this walls have been torn down, and he gets a kind of report back from somebody who's gone and visited there, and Nehemiah's heart is just ripped to shreds, man, because he knows it's because of the sin of the people that Jerusalem now lies in destruction. And Nehemiah is... Um, he's in a place of influence. He's a cupbearer for the king. And so he has this intimate, really regular, daily, probably access to the king's presence. And so one day the king sees Nehemiah come in and he can just tell, man, this guy is down. What's wrong with you? He asked Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah kind of goes into the story of, of the destruction of Jerusalem and just how much that, that hurts him, how hard that was to take. And in chapter 2, verse 4, the king asks, what is it you want? And I love what comes next. This is what Nehemiah writes. He says, Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. Now, it doesn't say that he took 30 minutes, you know, to go into his prayer closet and to pray, Oh, man, the king asked me a question. What am I going to say? I would imagine just right in that moment that he just kind of said, Phew, All right, God, <laughs> you know, to himself, Okay. Uh, you know, give me the words to say right now or open the king's heart to, to what it is I'm going to share with him right now. Whatever it is he threw up in prayer, it worked. Because what he asked for from the king was something pretty outrageous. He's like, hey, I want you to send me back to Jerusalem. And he had to write letters of passage to safely go through. I want you to give me the supplies and the manpower and all this stuff and let me rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And the king said, yes. So what does that quick prayer tell us about Nehemiah? What does it tell us about him? I'm asking you. Dave, to bail me out. Yeah, yeah. So he knows, man, what I'm about to ask. Like, this is, God's going to have to show up in this moment for the king to actually agree to this. And so I'm not going to go in there and be so cocky um, and prideful to think that just I'm going to be able to spin some awesome story and logically lay out the reasons why the king should grant me this wish. 
He's saying, no, this is, if this is going to happen, it's going to be God. And so, Lord, I need your help um, in this moment. And so that teaches a lot about just this humility and this dependence on God. So be mindful of God continually. Strive for that in your places of influence. On a daily basis, you might only have a moment to just throw up a prayer and just say, God, and man, I need your help here going into this meeting, this time, this interaction. Help me out. Charles Spurgeon, famous British pastor from the late 1800s, he said this, when joy and prayer are married, their firstborn child is gratitude. So joy and prayer are kind of the first two ones that we've talked about. And he says when those things come together, what's birthed out of that is gratitude. And so we come to this third command today to give thanks in all circumstances. And again, we have to consider the source here, right? Paul circumstances usually not great actually pretty horrendous trials and suffering that he has been through and so how is it that he learned to be thankful in all circumstances well i think first and foremost it's because he trusted in the one who called him listen to this thankfulness will be our habit when trust in god is our habit Thankfulness will be our habit when trust in God is our habit. So I want each of you right now, I want you to think about what is the thing, the situation, the person, the circumstance that I've been complaining the most about lately? And is your complaining revealing a lack of trust in God's plan for your life in that particular situation, arena, relationship? I bet the answer is yes. Just saying, right? And guys, the Israelites had a bad habit of complaining. Right? We, most of us know the story kind of of Exodus. The, the Israelites are slaves in Egypt and Moses, through these miraculous events, takes them out of slavery, right? They're on the run. God parts the Red Sea. They go across uh, the, what used to be the, the, re- the river and dry land. Then they get through. God releases the water again, drowns the Egyptian army. They get out in the middle of the desert. God rains down bread from heaven every day to feed them. He makes water come out of rocks to quench their thirst. And in the midst of all of this, the Israelites just keep moaning and grumbling about their circumstances to Moses over and over again. They lacked a spirit of thankfulness because at their core, they did not trust God's plan for their future. They thought they knew what they needed, and they thought they knew how their story should be going at this point. And when things didn't quite go exactly the way they thought, They were just like, oh, man, we'd rather be slaves back in Egypt compared to this. And it was just this, ugh. Guys, And what we're talking about here this morning is a lack of contentment. A lack of contentment, no matter our circumstances. Because rejoicing and praying and being grateful all overflow out of a heart that has learned to be content. Paul put it like this in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. You're probably pretty familiar with this. He says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. 
I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now, we like to take that last verse, right? Most of you probably know that verse, right? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And we like to apply it to all kinds of situations in life when the context of that verse is about contentment. That's how God wants you to apply that verse, not necessarily to something, some new endeavor you're going to go do, <laughs> but no, regardless of what you're doing, do you believe that you can do all things <laughs> with a contentment because you understand that God has met every need that you have? He says, I can do all things through him. In 1 Thessalonians, when he wrote, it was, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So through him and in him, we find the strength to be content. And so what flows out of us in every situation or circumstance when we are content is joy, prayer, gratitude. And our ability to leverage our influence in the circles that God has placed us in really boils down to one question. One question. What is your starting point? When your eyes pop open in the morning, what is the first thing that goes through your mind usually? Besides, I really need to pee. Okay, let's take that one off, all right? The next thought usually is this. One, it could be you start thinking about your circumstances. And maybe it's something that's lingering from the day before that's still kind of affecting you the next day. Or maybe you're thinking about, man, I've got that meeting with that person I'm not looking forward to. Or... You know, today is the day that I got that kid in class that I don't want to see that just drives me crazy. Or, um, you know, maybe you're just doing something, your job, a task, uh, something that you're just not excited about. And man, and you all, we've all been there. When, when you start thinking about your, your daily calendar and it's not real exciting, you, that can put you in a funk, right? And you, so you walk out, you know, and you come into the kitchen, usually I do, and I'm like, who didn't put these dishes away last night? And rah, 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 right? And you're just, ugh, getting on everybody because you're just like, you're not excited about your day. Now, another thing could happen. You could wake up, boom, first thought you have is, hey, going on a field trip today, you know? Or I've got this meeting with this, uh, I get to go to lunch, or I get to go on this trip out of town or whatever the thing might be that's kind of exciting. And you're like, hey, I'm kind of looking forward to this day. And that's great. And that can influence your behavior. So you might be a little more peppy, a little more kind to people. But that might only last for a day. And then the next day, it might be kind of a crappy day again. And, and you're just kind of on this roller coaster, you know, this yo-yo of kind of your temperament being controlled by the, the events on your calendar for the day. And those folks aren't really fun to be around, okay? Or is your first thought 
each and every day when you wake up. Man, God has already given me more than I deserve. God has already given me more than I deserve by sending his one and only son to die for me so that I might be set free, I might be forgiven, I might be washed clean, I might be called a son or daughter of the king, I might have abundant life now and eternal life forever. And because that is true, and I trust that, and I believe that in the core of who I am, then I can rejoice, and I can pray, and I can be thankful in a way that makes all other things in life secondary to that overarching reality of God's unconditional, relentless love for me. In a way that hopefully then it colors the way in which I see every circumstance in my life. In a way that doesn't make me a slave to the up and down emotions of just whether my schedule looks good or doesn't or whether things go my way or don't. I want to do something a little different today as we close. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. page 1054. I'm going to read verses 13 through 15, and then I'm going to invite you all to join me reading out loud verses 16 through 18, okay? So be ready. Either have your Bible, have your phone, 2 Corinthians 4. I'm going to read 13 through 15. Paul writes, it is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Basically what he's saying is whatever it is we believe is what comes out of our mouth. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Now, with me. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Mm. Guys, where has God planted you? Each and every one of you. Where has he given you influence? And I don't care if you're 12 or 83. God has put all of us in places where we are crossing paths with people on a regular basis. If you'll trust in him, and not on just what is seen, how sometimes the circumstances look, but on what is unseen, what is true, that in him and through him, he will give you the strength to rejoice, to pray, to give thanks, to be content in any circumstance, and guess what people will do? 
they will listen to you. You will have their attention. And when you do, when those little eyes, those students, those athletes, those patients, those employees, whoever it might be in your life, when you have their attention, what is it that you're going to say to them? about where your joy comes from, where your contentment comes from? Are you going to share with them this reality that, you know what, the reason why I'm able to have joy in the midst of whatever it might be is because I have a God who loves me, who is satisfied every desire that I could ever have so that I don't need my life to work out. I don't deserve my life to work out here on earth. Life couldn't deliver anything for me better than what I've already received in Christ's death and resurrection for me. And when we do that, guys, people are going to want to know the story. You're going to draw them in. And that's my, my prayer for us all this school year is that we, you know, even this morning as I pump you up and remind you of some truths that we don't get to November or February or April and we're just so sick of people we just can't take it any longer. You know what I mean? But that God would well up in us through his strength, this ability to be content and to do the things that Paul wrote about, that we would be people that could warn, encourage, help, love, be patient, do good for, right? The Bible says that you will know Know you're a Christian by our love. And the key to being able to love well is to rejoice always, to pray continually, to give thanks in all circumstances. So let's strive to do that together. And as we close today, this is what I'd like to do, just kind of tradition that we have here. I want to call up our, our educators, um, administrators, anybody that's connected, or if you're going to be a young life leader, an influencer with kids or a coach, I want you to come up and kind of fill the front and we're going to just pray for you, so I should see movement right now, because we have lots of those folks, okay? Come on down. people from the balcony making their way as well. Guys, this group alone, as you can see, is, is touching thousands of kids a day. Okay? Others of you out there that are in other health professions or whatever it is where you're around people, I mean, it's, it's staggering to think about the impact that we could have for Christ in this city. Right? This group of folks is touching, you know, if we've got 75,000, we're, we're touching three, four, five thousand 5,000 people a day. Think about the attitude and perspective that we would have in those moments that would just really bring about the kingdom of Christ in this town. So those of you there, um, we're praying for you too. Right now we want to just do a special blessing on these teachers, administrators, counselors, coaches, um, so in Young Life Leaders, if you could just put, uh, actually let's just stand, everybody. If you want to put your hand out just in a, in a way of just blessing, if you feel comfortable doing that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this, 
this morning. We thank you for the example of guys like Paul, who in just the midst of just really rough circumstances that, that we will probably never experience, he knew this secret of being content. And that secret was that he'd gotten everything from God that he could ever want. That he knew that he was, his life was just about serving others. And, and sometimes kind of taking the blows of their pain, their trauma, their hurt in ways that, that don't, doesn't have to frustrate us or, or make us um, you know, just angry or quick-tempered or impatient with them. But, but that we can just take those blows and, and, and respond in a way that's just loving and kind because God has done that for us, and we've received that. And so we pray for these educators here this morning, for these young life leaders that are impacting and touching thousands of kids' lives in our community. God, that you would strengthen them so that they could do all things for you that you've called them to do, and they can do it rejoicing and praying and giving thanks. And I pray for all of us, God, each and every day of this school year or of our work life, that when we open our eyes in the morning, that God, the first thought that would go through our minds was, man, how lucky am I to, to, to know Christ and to know what he's done for me, that I don't need the rest of my day to work out the way I'd like it to in order for me to be joyful, that, that, that my circumstances don't dictate my emotions today, but knowing that I'm loved by you would drive every action, every behavior, every thought that I have. Lord, I pray that for these folks. Pray for the influence we're going to have. I pray that many would come to know you this year because of these folks right here and that your kingdom would be changed forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.